Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Bwery, and as always, I'm with an advocate for better building codes, Dr. Lucy Jones. We thank our sponsors and supporters who help make the work of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center possible, including this podcast. Now, let's get to it. The news this week has been dominated by the devastation of the magnitude 7.8 earthquake on February 6, 2023, and its aftershocks in Turkey and Syria. But Lucy, this was not a surprise to you as a seismologist that we'd have an earthquake this big in this area. Not at all. This is the East Anatolian Fault. And just like the San Andreas Fault here in California, it's well mapped. It's well understood. We see the history of big earthquakes. We know these earthquakes are inevitable. We just don't know exactly when they're going to be occurring. When you say that, they're like, oh, that makes sense. Seismologists know where the faults are in the world. But what shocks people is the devastation we're seeing. We're just a couple days from that event, and we're seeing collapsed buildings, death and destruction across Turkey and Syria and other places. Why is that happening there? And could that happen here? People are concerned that in other earthquake-prone areas, you'd have similar devastation. I'm afraid that too many people think it couldn't possibly happen here in California because we must be doing a better job than they are, aren't they? The reality is, is that Turkey has exactly the same building code as California, the international building code. Their engineers have been trained just like the American engineers and often, in fact, work together. So we can't blame codes on why we are seeing the level of devastation that we have. And I think that we need to remember that your building is only as good as the building code that was in place at the time it was constructed and the degree to which that code was enforced. And this actually implies three different hurdles to get from good codes to good buildings. First, codes are not retroactive. You're only as good as the code you had at the time. Old buildings that we now know have problems don't just disappear. Second is the enforcement of the code. We rely on a building department and inspectors to make sure that nobody cheats. Even if most people don't, you can't guarantee that nobody cheats and we need the inspectors. And third and perhaps most subtle and maybe the most important is what's the objective of the building code anyway? What are we actually trying to do with these codes? And is it what we as a society actually want? Okay, let's take those three, Lucy. You've laid them out very clearly. Let's start with the older buildings and the fact that the code in place is the code that was in place when it was built, and that's it, right? It doesn't change just because the code changed, the building doesn't. We've always looked and said, well, you know, at least if we don't continue to build the problem, it's all going to get better, right? And yes, it's better now than it was before we changed the code. but you know, when we modeled what would happen on a big San Andreas earthquake in Southern California, the shakeout scenario, we'll be talking about it some, we ended up estimating 1,500 buildings collapsing. And those are the buildings with known problems that haven't disappeared. The only way that we can deal with this is to require retrofitting or demolition of those old buildings. And we've done that to some extent in California. 40 years ago, we started dealing with what are called unreinforced masonry buildings, and about half of the jurisdictions in California have mandated the removal of those very dangerous buildings. Half of them have not. Then soft first story, we were led by San Francisco back around 2011, started taking on the issue of what are called soft first story buildings, ones where the first floor is a lot weaker, has big openings or something compared to the upper floors. 
This may have been a big problem in Turkey, is software story buildings. First, San Francisco brought in ordinance. Los Angeles did it. We're approaching 20 cities around California that have adopted mandatory retrofit of those buildings. That leaves a lot of cities who haven't tackled it yet. And then the, probably the most dangerous type of building are what are called non-ductile reinforced concrete buildings. Again, many of those in Turkey, and some of them are both that and have a software story, so they're particularly problematic. City of Los Angeles and the city of Santa Monica have adopted mandatory retrofit of those buildings, but they're really alone at this point, and they've also given them 25 years to do it. So we have a lot of those buildings still out there. So we're headed in the right path. I can cite all of these special things that have been done. And in fact, I think our number from ShakeOut is going to be down because of these retrofits. These are people that won't die because those actions have been undertaken. That's a lot to manage when we talk about existing buildings, but those existing buildings are subject to the inspections. And that's what you talked about as your second point. How does an inspection play into this? Well, inspection happens both for retrofits, but also for building new buildings. I mean, I think we can argue that building code enforcement is one of those government regulations that we'd really like to see happening. We assume that it's there and we're betting our lives on the fact that it's there because you can't see once a building is completed whether or not it was actually built to code. Did somebody skimp on the quality of the concrete that went into it? Did somebody skimp on the number of nails because they got tired of bending over? We actually saw this in the earthquake in 2003, the San Simeon earthquake. Buildings that fell down because there were just inadequate nails along the foundation. The only way you find this is by having inspection often enough to catch it as the building is being constructed or the retrofits are being done. Very few building departments are funded at the level that they can do it. And in fact, we have a lot of jurisdictions around California that don't even have an engineer on staff. They just aren't funded at that level. They're very, very small operations because people don't like government regulations. This is one I hope that's in place. And this is one of those places where you hope that somebody independent and for the best interest of society is looking at the construction and making sure that it's done to code at the very minimum. And this is actually potentially an issue in Turkey that sometimes their jurisdictions are so poor, they can't afford inspectors. And therefore, the developers developing the buildings are actually hiring the inspectors. And, you know, when somebody's paying your paycheck, you tend to listen to what they want. And this might have been an issue here. I've never heard of that happening in California, but I've seen some very underfunded building departments. That underfunded building department and government involved in inspection sort of leads into your third point as well, right? The idea that we have this building code, that the international building code you referenced earlier, what is it about it that is crucial in this moment? And I think it's important to note that this, this does a lot of things for a lot of people that are doing construction and building, but we're talking particularly about the building's ability to withstand some sort of shaking. So explain what that's about. Okay, so the way the building code has evolved, it's mostly created by the engineers doing the work. And they're almost in the position of guessing what it is that society wants out of them. And they can see people want to not die in a building. And most people can agree that there's a role of government in preventing you from dying in a building. But doing better than that, is that really government's role? And you've got the developers and the people who are hiring the structural engineers to design the buildings who don't want to have to spend too much. So what we have evolved is a what's called a life safety code, which means it can be as weak as you want it to be. It can be complete loss after the earthquake, but you can't kill somebody with the building. And that's usually taken to mean 
don't collapse. But we can't prevent, you know, be absolutely certain we're engineers. We know that there's always some margin of error. So it's have a very low probability of collapsing. And then we have to figure out what is it that it's going to be subjected to. The other part of the code is that we say, whatever the worst earthquake is that you're going to get in that location, the building should be so weak that it's on the verge of failing, but not failing. Because building it any stronger is wasting the client's money. So we're actually designing them to be at the edge of failure, but not exceed it. Let's imagine we've underestimated what the shaking is a little bit. Because when we design it, we say, here's the range of all the possible shaking levels you could have for this magnitude at this distance, and we'll take the mean. That means if you're one standard deviation off the mean, you now have quite a bit larger shaking than the building was designed for. So we aren't giving ourselves a margin of error, and we're saying the only thing we're doing is not collapsing. The result is when we modeled the San Andreas earthquake, we ended up concluding that in new construction, new construction in downtown Los Angeles, we would see 1% of those buildings collapse and 10% of them be red tagged, so damaged that they would probably have to be torn down. The building code is not giving us earthquake-proof buildings. The building code is giving us buildings that most likely, really quite probably, will not kill you. But financial loss, well, that's your problem to deal with. And this is not just the individual's problem. Obviously, there is a financial loss for them, the owner of the property, but it affects all of society. And this is the work that we have spent years together working on, Lucy, that a community that is resilient is a community that works together to identify its challenges and issues that it might face and find a way to solve them together. In this case, one bad building that an individual owner chooses not to make that extra investment could impact an entire block or worse, an entire district because of its precarious nature after the earthquake. What we've seen out of Turkey is a number of strong aftershocks, which as you indicated, are likely and and expected with an earthquake of this size. And so this isn't just a matter of profit and loss for an individual building owner or developer, but rather the impact on society, whether our community can withstand the impact of the shaking on its infrastructure, buildings being part of that. And you know, even if we said the only role of government is life safety, Life safety is more than not being crushed during the event itself. Life safety includes being able to have a community that functions and serves our needs after the earthquake. It's having a building that doesn't have to be closed because its neighbor has collapsed. Every building adjacent to a collapsed building gets red tagged after the event. How do you now come back and start your business up again? Life safety can include what happens to us in that disruption of the event and disruption of society. One study showed that in the three years after the declaration of a major disaster, the counties affected by the major disaster saw a 22% increase in suicides. Because when life becomes too miserable, you can give up. And that's the work of building a resilient community is making sure people don't give up on themselves or their community. So as we look at the impacts around the globe in Turkey and Syria and those areas, and we think about our community in Southern California or the communities that have seismic risk in the U.S., we have a choice to make. We have decisions as individuals, as community members, as community leaders about what the future we want to have. And do we want to see the news when we have our earthquake be similar to what we're seeing in Turkey, or do we want to have a different outcome? And so, Lucy, How do we change the outcome so we don't see what happens in Turkey happen here in the U.S.? Changing the outcome requires all of us. As an individual, I can make sure that I'm ready. I can retrofit my own building. 
I can go talk to my neighbors. And this is a really important point of it, right? As a community, we need to come together. But when you get to building codes, we need leadership at a higher level. This ends up being a political decision that needs to be made. And we have struggled to have the political leadership that's willing to take on this type of problem that doesn't have a short-term return within the time of you know, your elected office. We've got to be able to think farther ahead for the good of the state, for the good of our society. And we need political leaders who will take this on. And the thing is, we've seen folks do that at the local level in cities around Southern California, Northern California. We've actually seen some movement in the state legislature here in California. But as you're saying, it, it really does take a concerted effort of all those political leaders at the top to be able to say, we need to make this a priority. We need to set an expectation that our building code does more than prevent collapse, but actually does what it needs to do to allow for communities and society to continue on after the next big event. And we need we'll, this commitment at the state and the national level. Well, let's leave it there for now. And until next time, I'm John Bwery with Dr. Lucy Jones and you getting through it. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Visit us online to get past shows. Our music is performed by Josh Lee, and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones. 